0: The following audio is from Grace City Church in San Diego, California. More information about Grace City Church is available at gracetysd.com. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say... Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope that is in you. We thank you that you are in our midst, and that's something that we can hold on to. Um, Lord, I pray that you would speak through Randall today as he he gives us your word. Um, Pray that our hearts would be open to hearing from you. In your name we pray, amen.
1: All right, thank you, Brooke. Good morning. So we're in Haggai chapter two, verses one through nine, and um, here's the message. Hope, a greater treasure. And so let me ask this morning, where do you find your hope? Uh, During the first part of the 1920s uh, in the United States, the economy was gaining extreme like just steam and and there's excitement because of something called mass production. It was a game changer. And that time period was eventually dubbed the Roaring Twenties. Uh, some of the wealthiest people during that time were Arthur Cutton, Albert Fall, Howard Hobson, Jesse Livermore, and Charles M. Schwab. Um, and, and then um, on October 29th, 1929, uh, things changed uh, because of the Great Depression. The, the Great Depression hit and uh, billions of dollars evaporated. Um, And so here's the thing. By the end of their life, Arthur Cutton, let me tell you what happened with him. He died of a heart attack right before being brought to court for tax evasion. Albert Fall went to prison for accepting a $100,000 bribe and passed away in 1941. Howard Hobson lost most of his estimated $74 million and lived out the rest of his life in obscurity and ill health, dying in a sanitarium in 1949. Jesse Livermore took his own life after Thanksgiving in 1940. Charles M. Schwab was bankrupt when he died and left behind an estate with debts and obligations totaling over $1.7 million. These were people who were thriving during the economy in the early 1920s, but later the economy changed, and so did their lives. See, as we've been studying through the book of Haggai, uh, we've seen how the economy can play a significant role in all of our lives. The struggling economy during the time of Haggai uh, produced a people that were self-focused. They were in survival mentality. And these were the people of God. These were the people that trusted and believed in God. These were the people that God had set aside. And that was their mentality, and what it did is it, it caused a neglect of God's ways, God's temple, it left everything in ruins. And so here's the conclusion. They, they put their hope for a better future in what they could do in themselves, not in God. And so God comes to them and confronts them and tells them much like what it says in Psalm 103, 15 through 16. Here's what it says. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field for the wind passes over it and it is gone and its place knows it no more. See, God all the way back in chapter one told them that he blew away any chance of prosperity that they could have. Why? It was because they were depending on stuff more than on him. And so for us, Much like the Israelites, the economy has the ability to hold us in fear, anxiety, worry. But what we'll see is it also has the immense potential for great hope. Great hope. Not based on selfish ambition like we saw the trap that the Israelites fell into, but based on a trust and hope in God. And so, how does God reshape our view of the economy? Well, Greg Foster wrote, biblically, the word for stewardship comes from the same Greek word, oikonomia, as economics. And so we've been talking about economics this month, the, the economy of God, which refers to the, the management of things in the world. And here's what he says. Good stewardship is a good management of things in the world. And so one of the main teachings throughout Scripture is that we are not owners. We don't own what we have but we are stewards. God says you are managers of what you have because ultimately God owns everything. And so we're all accountable before God with everything that we have. And so what is the economy of God? Well, here's here's what it is. It's when we start to see all of our activity, not just financial resources, but all of our activity. Maybe it's owning property, buying, selling, employment, finance, investment, business, entrepreneurship, our gifts, our abilities, our whole lives as disciples of Jesus, right? We're all stewards of that. They're ultimately all means of God's grace and ways in which we can glorify God by helping and serving others, you see, even as we talked about today, this kingdom vision of planting churches and helping what's, what's, what God is doing in Ecuador and Tokyo and all of these places, the refugees in our community. See, the economy of God is this, that God is in charge. And what that does is it brings hope to those in need. Because here's the thing about the scriptures. Even God says this to Abraham. He says, you are blessed to be a blessing. You are blessed to be a blessing. See, all the way back in Jeremiah 29, the people of God were sent to a pagan city, a huge city, but one where people did not worship God. And and there were different voices of people that were coming in saying, here's what you need to do. You need to separate yourself from everybody. You need to run from everybody, or you just need to, to become like everybody else. But here's what God says. In Jeremiah 29, seven, God speaks to his people. And he says, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Right, so this desperate moment, this desperate time in their life, God says, okay, you're in exile right now, but I actually carried you there for a reason, for a purpose. He says, pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. He says, go and make that place a better place. Don't think that if I've blessed you with all of the resources and things that you have, that it was for you, but it's actually for others. See, many times we think that the economy, all of those things I talked about, property, buying, selling, employment, finance, business, our gifts, our possessions, all those things, what we think is this, those things are all about me. It's what I've accumulated, it's what I've done, it's what I have. And we say, well, I don't have that much, or I've got a whole lot, but at the end of the day, do we think that it's God's? See, many times we ask ourselves just this question, how am I doing? How am I doing? And what that does is it puts us in fear and anxiety and stress. See, in Haggai, God is taking the people's eyes off of themselves and placing their eyes on him, on him. And so today our text is Haggai 2, 1 through 9. And just to give some background, as we've covered over the past couple of weeks, as we're going through, going through the book of Haggai, the people of Israel had returned from exile. So they were taken away from their land, and they had returned now from exile. And they had been in the land for almost 20 years, and up to that point, they had neglected to fully build God's temple. Now, Trevor said that they built the foundations, but they neglected to fully rebuild God's temple that was destroyed back in 586 BC. The foundations for the temple were there, but little progress had been made up to that point. And so at the end of chapter one, the people, as Trevor talked about last week, responded and started to build the temple again. But they run into some obstacles. And so, what does God say to these people in chapter two that have run into some obstacles? Well, he's addressing them in three ways. I'm gonna give you all three up front. These are our notes today if you're taking notes. The first one is this. God addresses a current reality. Number two, he gives a needed encouragement. Number three, he offers a better future. And so he addresses a current reality, gives a needed encouragement, and offers a better future. Okay, I'm gonna take this off. There we go. All right over here now all right so the first point addresses a current reality let's look at verses two through three here's what God says he says speak now to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel governor of Judah and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak the high priest and to all the remnant of the people and say who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory how do you see it now Is it not as nothing in your eyes? And so what's happening here? Well, at this point, the people are about a month into construction. And there are some things that have come up. There, There have been a couple of festivals that have come up during this time. And so those things are kind of distracting the people as they're building. And what's most likely happening is as they're building, as they're being distracted by all of these festivals, there are different people that are coming in to the city and seeing the progress. That's being made. But it doesn't look great because they just started. And so there are most likely two things that are happening. As people are coming in, the first one is this. They're not helping. They're not helping. And so look at verse two. It says, the remnant of the people. So God tells Haggai to address the remnant. He says, speak now to the governor the high priest, and specifically to the remnant. Um, Now, in chapter one, verses one through two, God spoke generally to all the people. But now he's speaking to the remnant. And so here's what we need to understand. God spoke to everyone in chapter one, but there is only a few people that actually obeyed what he said. There's a remnant. So we find them in chapter two. It's not much different than what we see today. Now, there's a blog entitled, do 20% of the people do 80% of the work? And you're like, yes, I work. It's what I have in my job, you know? Like, but uh, Matt Capp sa- uh, writes this. He says this in an article. He says, according to economist Vilfredo Pareto, for many events, roughly 80% of the effects uh, come from 20% of the causes. He says, this principle has been applied to fields of business, science, software, and even criminology. In church life, it is usually said that 20% of the people do 80% of the work. In other words, 80% of the congregation remains passive when it comes to living on mission for God. While it may be, not be true for all congregations, I think it is safe to say about a large portions of the body of Christ do treat church like consumers, for, 80, uh, for the 80%, as theologian David Wells has reminded us, the church is a place to come and receive religious services and goods. If their needs are not met, they begin church shopping. However, 1 Corinthians 12, the apostle Paul is clear. The body does not consist of one member, but of many. And the apostle Peter is even more explicit as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. See, this is how God designed the church, and God calls each and every individual to serve the body with the gifts they've been granted. Now, here's the thing about economy. Here's this was an economist that wrote that. Like Vilfredo Pareto was an economist. What's the thing about the economy? It's that all of us are invited into it when it's the kingdom of God. It's all of us are invited into it when it's the church. And so in this case, there are a remnant of people that are left, but there are also people who say, you know what? I'm not going to do anything about that. See, not everyone trusted God and obeyed him. It just happens. It happens today. It happened in the time of Haggai. And, um, And so God addresses this. But secondly, he addresses their, number two, critical attitudes, critical attitudes. Look at verse three. So God says this, he says, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it as nothing in your eyes? Again, what's happening here? Well, to some, the past looks better than the future. And what was happening is this attitude of the past looking better than the future is starting to spread amongst the people. And so God addresses it. He stops it in its tracks. He he says, okay, I know what you're thinking, right? I know what you're saying. God's addressing it because the people couldn't move forward with a critical spirit. And so God says this. He says, Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Because He's people are looking at this temple, which is being rebuilt, and they're looking at it and they're saying, It's not that great. Ah, there's not much happening doesn't look that great to me and he speaks specifically to to certain people that could have been spreading this critical spirit it was the people that were there when Solomon built it see at this point there were people who were about seven years old that were probably a part of the 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 group of people that were there that were a part of the exile that were taken away but that saw the temple in its glory before it was destroyed and so they were looking at it and they were thinking they didn't see the beauty that God saw as he saw his people coming together and rebuilding they were stuck on what they felt like they were missing That's what they felt like. They felt like they were missing something and so it wasn't as great as it used to be. And so they were stuck on that. Commentator Robert Alden writes, he says, there was no way these relatively poor exiles could have matched the extravagances of Solomon with his professional craftsmen working with imported woods and huge quantities of gold. And what was happening was their critical attitudes, their critical spirit, about what was being built was keeping them back from seeing what God was doing. See, they were holding on to unrealistic expectations and it was causing extreme discouragement amongst God's people. And so next, God does this. He he gives a needed encouragement. He gives them a needed encouragement. Look at verses four through five. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you, when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. What does God do next? Does he come down hard on them and say, How dare you judge the temple right now in its present state? How dare you do all of these things? No, he doesn't come down like that. But he lovingly comes in. He addresses their fatigue, their frustration, their fears. See, he graciously brings them this encouragement by saying, number one, be strong. Be strong. He says it three times in verse four and and follows it up with declares the Lord. Right, God's saying, okay, will you trust my words or are you gonna stay in discouragement? But I'm telling you, be strong, be strong, be strong. See, how many times are we so fatigued and frustrated in life? We're we just fatigued, we're tired, we're frustrated. But if we're honest, we need to, to realize that many times we're fatigued and frustrated because we're depending on our own strength, not God's. See, we're not depending on God's strength, we're depending on our own. And so God is encouraging the people here to find their strength in him, not in themselves. Like you think you're going to accomplish this great thing on your strength. They would not be able to accomplish it, this great work on their own. 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon in his sermon, Man's Weakness and God's Strength, wrote this. He says, I feel that my voice fails me. And with it, my very powers of thought too And therefore, I can only turn to my comrades in arms in the good war of Christ. And I say to them, brethren, you and I can do nothing of ourselves. We are poor, puny things. But let us attempt great things for God is with us. Let us dare great things for God will not leave us. You see, what is it that that lifts our head? What is it that encourages us? Is it that we just need to be stronger and tougher and get over it? No, it's we need to turn our eyes to Christ and say, I don't have what it takes. I don't have the strength within me. But I can be strong in the Lord. You see, this is what Haggai is saying because look at verse five. He says, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. See, their frustration, their fatigue, all those things were coming because they were looking at the work and saying, "Ah, look at all we have to do. Look at all all the things that we've gotta do. Look at all the things on our checklist. We just can't get it done. But God's saying, get your eyes off of that. Get them onto me because I'm in your midst. I am with you. See, what God is pointing them to is as he looks at them struggling with discouragement, economic struggle, he saying, just look at me. I'm with you. I'm enough. And as they see God, they'll no longer fear not meeting unrealistic expectations. They had these unrealistic expectations. How many times do we have things on our checklist that are just so overwhelming, but they're unrealistic? They're unrealistic. I... I talk about this with my wife all the time. I'm like, okay, what do we need to do today? Okay, we got all these things on our checklist, right? Like, here's all the things that we've got to do today. But at the end of the day, we're like, that's not going to get done. That is just not going to get done. But we're going to try. And we're going to be stressed out about it. And we're going to work really hard on our own abilities and traits to try and get it done. But it just doesn't happen. See, we all do it. What they need to see is they have God. Hebrews 13, five says this, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. See, many times we get so discouraged and we get so bent out of shape. It's like, ah, because we're not content in God, we're trying to find contentment in what we do. And what we do. And God's saying, isn't it enough that I'm with you? The third and last point is this. God offers a better future. God offers a better future. Look at verses six through nine. He says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. Then I will fill this house, house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. In this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. See, some may have heard that and they think to themselves, oh yes, that's what I'm talking about. God's gonna make us rich. God's gonna get us everything that we need to make this temple just like it was with Solomon. Is that what God's doing here? Is that what God's saying? See, how is God offering a better future? When verse six says, we find this amazing promise. He says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean that God's gonna shake the earth? One of the best ways to understand the scripture is to interpret scripture with scripture. And so how does the scripture interpret the scripture? Well, we find it all the way in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 12. And here's what it says in verse 26 and 27. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. What does that mean? What does that mean? God is saying, I know that your life is shaky. I know that your economy is shaky. I know that your temple is not what you think it should be. And you're desperate. You're desperate right now but I'm building a kingdom that can't be shaken. See, like there's, there's this world, but I'm actually building something that's greater than this world that will last longer than this world. It is an eternal kingdom. I'm building, building that, and that kingdom can't be destroyed. God's kingdom. You say, well, how? How? Okay, how are you shaking the earth? How is all of these things happening? Well, in verse seven, the KJV actually has a great translation of this verse because it captures the messianic nature, the coming of Christ nature of this verse. Here's what it says in the, the King James Version. It says, and I will shake all nations and the desire of all nations shall come and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. Who's the desire of all nations? Is the desire of all nations just another really nice temple? Something that's very similar, like, like in the day of Solomon, it's it just this beautiful structure, this elaborate structure. Is that the desire of all nations? No. Ancient, ancient rabbis and early Christians like Jerome believed that this was the, me, the coming of the Messiah, that God himself and the person of Jesus was coming. God is saying, this temple that you're looking at, that you don't really think there's much there, that temple is where Jesus himself will walk. And his glory will fill this temple. See, there is a greater treasure that will fill that meager temple that they're building. That's greater than any treasure that filled the temple when Solomon was there. This is a better future. And because this is the future, which is secure in God. Because God's making a promise. He's saying, okay, there's something better that's coming that's going to fill that temple, that that temple is going to be built. You don't have to be worried or concerned if you're actually going to finish. You don't have to be worried or concerned of how is it going to happen because we don't have the resources right now. You better believe that God will pour into his temple and it will be built because his son is going to walk in that temple. The future is secure and God will provide exactly what is needed for the temple to be built. Commentator Robert Alden again says, he says, God's claim that the silver and the gold are his may be a response to the fears of the people. They were economically destitute. The drought and consequent famine had forced them to dip deeply into their meager resources. Subsequently, they found no funds for the temple project. God promised that the glory of the present house would be greater than the glory of the former house. You see, God is faithful to provide. He's faithful to provide. But he first must tell the people of a greater treasure than silver or gold. See, you think that the treasure of all the nations that needs to be pouring in here is is more stuff, is more material stuff. You're wrong. You need something greater. You need the Christ that I'm going to send for the people. And that is what all the nations need. See, the beauty of looking around in our church today is knowing that there are multiple nations represented. The beauty of being able to look at Tokyo and say, we want to plant a church in a place where there are very few is to know that God has a vision. This kingdom vision that we see in Revelation 21 where all nations, all peoples are coming before the throne of God. That's the kingdom that will never be shaken. It happens through Jesus. And so just some takeaways. Now that we know that this is all pointing to Jesus, how can we live as people with hope? I wanna give you three takeaways. The first one is this. By addressing your current reality. By addressing your current reality. Have you overlooked what God has provided? Have you overlooked the things that are in your hand right now and says, man, that is just not good enough. And it's because we get just caught up in the comparison trap. And looking at everybody else and saying, well, that's what they have. And that's what they have. And why can't I have that? But God is saying, look at what's in your hand. You're a steward of that. You're a manager of that. Remember, everything belongs to God. And so if you're a manager of that and God is looking at you and saying, this is what I put in your hand. How can we look at that and say, that's not good enough? It's not good enough because that's what the people were doing when they were looking at the temple. That's what people were doing as they're walking by being critical. See, let's ask ourselves, do we have a critical spirit about what God has provided? Then what it says is we'll never be satisfied. We'll never be satisfied. Ecclesiastes 5:10 says this, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also this also is vanity. The same one, the same person that they're talking about. Remember how great his temple was? He experienced it all. And he said, he writes this in Ecclesiastes 5.10. He's like, you can have everything. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. And so let's address our current reality. Let's say, do we see everything that we have as coming from above? It's a great gift of God's grace that he's given us. Second takeaway is this, working with what God's given you. Okay, working. So one of the encouragements that God gives in verse four is this, he says, work for I am with you. Work for I am with you. What does discouragement do many times? It causes us to just say, I'm done. It paralyzes us. It paralyzes us. And so, but God says, no, 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 no. Remember that I'm with you. Remember, just keep working. Put in some effort. Let's just ask for a minute how we listen to God's wisdom on stewardship. Right, like we can look at what we have and say, ah, it's not that much. And so we just go out and we just don't know what happened to it. Right, and it just, what happened? I don't know. just disappeared. But God says, no, what I've given you are you working with that? See, it takes work to be economically wise with what He's given us. I say, well, where do I start? Let's go to God's Word. There's something uh, Kevin DeYoung put out not too long ago called the Ten Principles on Money and Possessions from Proverbs. And so, if you look through the book of Proverbs, it tells us about wisdom in these areas. And these are just the 10 he gives with the different scriptures. And I'll put these up online under the sermon notes. But the first one is this. There are extremes of wealth and poverty that provide unique temptations to those who live in them. And so that's from Proverbs 30, verses 7 through 9. Proverbs 12, 9, uh, nine and thirteen seven say, don't worry about keeping up with the Joneses. Don't worry about this comparison trap but we just get sucked in so easily through social media and all these other places. It says, don't focus on that. That's what it tells us in Proverbs. The rich and poor are more alike than they think. Proverbs 22, two. See, what that causes is sometimes we think that we're just better than people because we got more than other people. Or we look at people who are poor, and we say, well, you should be more like me. That's pride. That's pride. And so we're actually more alike than we think. You can't outgive God. God is gracious. So Proverbs 3, 11, 22, I'll talk about this. Uh, poverty is not pretty. There are people hurting and in pain because of poverty. There's a reality of an economic system. And so how can we help? Money cannot give you ultimate security. It can't. The Lord hates those who get rich by injustice. Are there are people that are making money off of others and doing it in ways that are injustices to them. The Lord loves those who are generous to the poor. Hard work and good decision-making usually lead to increased prosperity. Right? so it talks about that all throughout. Proverbs, money isn't everything. It, doesn't, it does not satisfy. It is inferior to wisdom, it is inferior to righteousness, it is inferior to the fear of the Lord. It is inferior to humility. It is inferior to good relationships, all right? And so all of these things like money can't buy you everything like our world tells us. And so those are just some areas, but I would encourage you, study through the book of Proverbs, see what it says, say, Lord, help me, teach me your way so that I can work with what you've given me in a wise way. And lastly, this, do you believe that Jesus is better than silver or gold? Do you believe that Jesus is better than silver or gold? What, what what takes away the fear, shame, comparing, ungratefulness, hoarding? It's knowing God and that it's Him that provides for our daily needs. See what happens many of the times is this. We get scared. Some of you are like ultimate savers, right? Like you were like, save, 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 save. My my youngest brother was like that. I'm like, I don't get you. You don't want a new pair of shoes, you don't want a new game. You know, like, you don't want to buy all these things. Like, what is wrong with you, buddy? You know, I, I, that's how he is. And so some of you have this mentality. It's like, what if? What if, what if, what if, what if, what if? To agree, that's good. It's good. I like, there are things that I need to learn from my brother, right? I was like, teach me how to save. Teach me what that looks like we can get so wrapped up in that that it becomes our God. And I worked at a Kroger. It was like a supermarket. And I was the cashier. And I remember people who would come up and they would fight me over pennies. Fight me over pennies. I'm like, dude, it's not my money, man. I'm just here collecting the, you know, like, I don't know about that coupon. I'm sorry, but they were so wrapped up and that's where I realized. I'm like, you can be so wrapped up in it that you can worship money. It's just like Jesus talks about. You can't have two masters. It's either you worship one and serve the other, like. And so what if God changed the narrative in our mind? That as we trust Jesus, as we trust his ways, as we trust him, and he's better than silver or gold, what if he changes the what ifs to even if? To even if. Because you know what? There are people in Northern California right now that weren't expecting this fire. We're not expecting it. So what hope would you or I have if we lost everything? It's that even if I lost it all, I could never lose the love of Jesus. I could never lose Jesus. He's always with me. He's always there. How do you know that's true? It's because God willingly shook heaven of its greatest treasure and offered him to us. God gave you and I his son And so let me ask you, if he was willing to do that, do you think he won't take care of you? He won't take care of you. He gave you his greatest treasure, Christ. He is more than able to take care of us. And so will we trust him? Because it's kind of like the phrase goes, Sometimes you don't know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And so if he allows us to see that, that's a gift of his grace. It's a gift of his grace because you'll know he's always with you no matter what. Let's pray. Jesus, we know that our hope is in Christ and that our riches could never Replace the gift of knowing Jesus. And I pray that today, God, you make that real in our hearts. You make that real in our lives. And that, God, because of that, we'll be able to be a generous people because you're a generous God. And so thank you, God. Thank you for your kindness to us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.